Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Andrew Phillips from the University of Queensland. Andrew is a reader in International Relations and Strategy and an ARC DECRA Fellow in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Nick. Latrobe Asia is an initiative of Latrobe University, product placement here that's intended to oversee the university's academic engagement with Asia. And one of the first questions people always ask me, whether they're inside the university or outside, is, what do you mean by Asia? Who's in? Who's out? Where exactly does it start and end? And today, Andrew and I want to talk a bit about what Asia is, what we call it, why we call it, what we call it, and what it means to give it different labels. In Australia, recently, we've become very used to the language of an Asian century, The previous government issued a white paper talking about Australia in the Asian century. Certainly in Europe and parts of North America, you hear similar language. You don't often hear it actually in Asia itself. So why don't we start with the basic ones? When we talk about Asia, let's say that Asian century, what's the adjective referring to? The interesting thing with the Asian century, and you've already alluded to this, Nick, is that this is very much a local Australian obsession. What it means for Australian policymakers is the idea of trying to foreground the notion that The region that we are living in is one that will now be dominated by resurgent Asian great powers. Uh, And there's a preoccupation of trying to anticipate what the world will look like that Australian policymakers will be navigating. And for me, the implicit contrast here is between what Henry Luce described as the American century, the 20th century that Australian students of geopolitics generally love because uh, American hegemony worked out so well for us, and an emerging era of uncertainty that we're seeing now in terms of a shift towards a more complex multipolar order in which for the first time since European settlement in Australia, we are witnessing an era that will not be dominated by an Anglophone hegemon. So I think when Australians talk about the idea of the Asian century, it's very much a shorthand for trying to foreground that uncertainty, but also try to manage the anxieties that are associated with it. So you get these kind of notions, for example, of instead of the tyranny of distance, people are now spruiking the idea of the promise of proximity. And I think it's a way for us to try to navigate this idea of we're shifting away from a world that we are familiar, that we feel safe in, to one that looks very different to anything that Australians have experienced before. And I think that's really what is encapsulated in the phrase, the Asian century and potentially also explains why it has such local resonance, but has seemed to travel very little within the region more generally. And the term Asia itself is a relatively new one, and itself not of Asian provenance. Sure. When it's used, let's say geographically, just to start with some basic stuff, in Australia, what do we tend to think of when we say Asia? What are the countries and regions that we talk about? Referring well, to. I think the interesting thing for Australians is that historically, when we talked about Asia, uh, we were referring primarily to East Asia. And that was a real preoccupation, even at the level of ethnic labels. When you say to an Australian, try to imagine an Asian, they'd imagine typically someone from Northeast Asia or Southeast Asia. If you ask the same thing to someone in Britain, they're likely to think of an Indian or a Pakistani. So generally our fixation with Asia as we understood it was very particular to East Asia. And what we've really seen uh, very much within the last five years, I wouldn't even say the last decade, but the last five years, is an attempt by intellectual entrepreneurs within Australia to broaden those horizons from an East Asia-specific focus to one that encompasses what people are now talking about, the Indo-Pacific of bringing South Asia and potentially regions even further afield into our Asian optic. Mm. Come back to the Indo-Pacific in a moment, but I want to pick on that point around 
depending on where you are in the world, Asia means different things yeah. to you. I mean, I remember when I was studying in Britain, I had exactly that cognitive dissonance of reading the newspaper and saying, a man of British Asian descent, dot, 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 and there's a photo of a guy who's clearly from South Asia. So sure. thinking, hang on, that's no, 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 it's sort of Australian frame of reference. And, you know, from Europe, Asia has quite different resonances, even in different parts of Europe. So France, people talk about Asia, there's often uh, thoughts around Turkey, around yes. Central Asia, as well as the sort of more conventional East Asia, mm. the Far East and these sorts of things. Ditto in America, I think in the United States, there's often, like Australia, that kind of East Asian yes. focus on Asia. When did we start using this term, Asia? Well, I think culturally it really started to gain a lot of purchase in Europe from the late 18th century onwards. There is a sense of greater engagement with Asia at that point, but also this increasing civilizational self-confidence that develops from the late 18th century. Historically, in Europe, going all the way back to antiquity, it was a classical division of the world into the three known continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, the Orient. But I think the idea of actually having a, a much clearer sense of this notion of Asia as something that is fundamentally different, that is exotic, but that is somehow subordinate to Europeans, is one that really only starts to gain currency from the late 18th century. I think geopolitically, though, when people start to conceptualise Asia not merely as a place to get rich and a place to encounter exotic different cultures, but as potentially a source of geopolitical tension or threat in some way, this is very much a phenomenon that develops in the mid to late 19th century. You know, when people talk about the Eastern question, not merely the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the kind of problems that the sick man of Europe is creating, but also the tensions that are developing further in what the Brits would call the Far East. That's something that really develops in the late 19th century. And why I think that is so relevant for us in Australia is that that sense of this great monolith of Asia as somehow representing a source of peril as well as prosperity, that's something that is just beginning to glide into the Western consciousness and consolidate right around the time that Australia is talking about federating. In many respects, federation, the creation of an Australian Commonwealth, is very much a response to the perceived threats of an emerging and resurgent Asia. So I think there are different ways in which the term Asia is deployed from the late 18th century, and they reflect the different preoccupations of Europeans throughout those different eras. Yeah, because it is very much that it is a word of European origin. I mean, it's come yeah. to be something that people in Asia have grabbed hold of, and the same way the term the Middle East is something that people in the Middle East very much like. Exactly, and reject yeah. it, but it's And it's that places get bound together. You know, the, for example, the India-China trade, you know, tea one way and silver the other yes. way and opium and the connections. That begins to create a sense that Asia is coherent. And it seems to me also at the moment the sense of an Asian century seems to be driven also by a sense that these differing parts of this big, disparate part of the world are coming together to be a bit more coherent now than in the past. So they're trading with each other more, they're investing with each other more, they're thinking about each other's security, each other as in one another's orbit in a way that they didn't used to. To go back to the term you mentioned just before is the Indo-Pacific. So in yes. Australia, this has become a very popular term, increasingly obvious in government publications. What's driven that revival? And I guess, what are they trying to get at by saying Australia's future is in the Indo-Pacific? Sure. For me, the Indo-Pacific, it's the geopolitical equivalent of a Rorschach ink blot. Different people read into it very different things. So there are many that refer to it simply as a geoeconomic concept. And the argument here is that particularly with the rise of factory Asia, the emergence of these incredibly dense production networks, 
which it must be said primarily link East Asia with North America. There's a sense that these are becoming increasingly dependent on resources, particularly oil and gas from the Middle East. And you've got this energy superhighway that is increasingly linking the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. So you've got one argument that is simply a matter of geoeconomics. And there's always an element behind it of saying, well, India will eventually follow the East Asian path and there'll be this increasing interconnection of prosperity there. More generally, though, when people talk about the Indo-Pacific, and again, there are as many definitions of the Indo-Pacific as there are advocates out there, but there's this notion of trying to refer to increased strategic interconnectivity between the Indian Ocean region and East Asia, primarily also with the relationship between India and China. What I find fascinating about this is that when you talk to Indo-Pacific boosters, some of them are equally happy with India-Pacific as they are Indo-Pacific. So that gives an indication of exactly how important it is, this notion of trying to yoke India within a broader strategic framework. The real question, the real point of debate between a lot of Indo-Pacific proponents is, is this an inclusive concept that is meant to point the way towards a larger uh, regional or pan-regional security architecture? Or is this really more a dog whistling between the various democracies in the region as a means of trying to build a coalition to contain China? And it's interesting that the term, you see that term used a little bit outside of Australia and India, and it is quite a popular term in India. But for example, you know, if you look at American strategic universe, whether it's the government folk or whether it's uh, think tankers or, or scholars, same in Japan, same in China, you see it a little bit, but generally it's off the radar. And in fact, there's a great speech given by the commander of the US Pacific Fleet where he said, in this part of Asia, Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific, call it what you like, <laughs> which was a sort of yeah. nice little, you know, I'm a sailor, it's a sea, it connects people, who cares what we call it? Yeah. I guess what you're getting at is there seem to be differing forces driving, is it the energy and trade connections that make the region what it is? Is it the strategic security threat? Are these forces things that are likely to make this concept have an ongoing relevance? Because from a you know, cynic's point of view, Indo-Pacific's long, Asia's short. Is this a flash in the pan and we'll get back to saying it's Asia at sea versus Asia on the land? Well, I think the important thing to note is that the Indo-Pacific is not only a descriptive concept, but it's a predictive and a prescriptive concept. A lot of the energy behind Indo-Pacific, you'll find the advocates say, well, the Indo-Pacific is describing a region of growing strategic interconnection and that this will continue to grow. And a large part of that assumption is around the strategic weight and behaviour of India. So here a lot of advocates say, well, India will shortly be the most populous country. It will economically continue to develop and it will be growing in its strategic extroversion and economic interconnectivity with East Asia. Because of that, we need to get ahead of the curve and develop a new set of strategic imaginaries and institutions to reflect that emerging reality. And without willing to entirely dismiss that line of argument, I suggest that we do need to be very cautious about really interrogating what exactly is in the hyphen of the Indo-Pacific. What is the value of a move that aggregates two formally distinct regions rather than recognising what continues to differentiate them? Is there greater interconnection sufficient for us to warrant basically a supersizing of Australia's strategic geography? Or are the regions still sufficiently delinked and sufficiently diverse and sufficiently different from one another to warrant talking about them in uh, two different tones? Mm. 
One thing that people often say when you're talking about Asia is to say, you know, it's a catch-all phrase, but in contrast, for example, to Europe, there is not a clear shared culture, shared past. It's too big. They're too different. They're too diverse. There's different religions, cultures, languages, foods. Mm. You could say the same about the Indo-Pacific. How important do you think that cultural and values component is? I tend to be one that focuses on the economic and strategic drivers of things. And the reason for that is that uh, ultimately, and this will come across more facetiously than I intended, but this stuff's made up. If we talk about even making the claim about European cultural homogeneity, tell that to the Greeks and the Germans at the moment, that when we come up with these pan-regional constructs, trying to anchor them in a sense of common identity really presupposes a larger question about, well, how do these greater cultural identities develop? So for me, looking at the Indo-Pacific, it's probably not that important to say, well, to what degree is there a shared sense of identity throughout Asia? Because I think fundamentally, um, if we look, for example, at a country like Indonesia, which hosted the Bandung Conference, which was all about Africa-Asia transcontinental solidarity, the reality is Indonesia's entire national slogan, unity and diversity, reflects the fact there's a whole lot of diversity going on even within Asian states, let alone between them. So I think the question of cultural commonality or the idea of shared recognition really should be and remain subordinate to the idea of, does it give us a valuable and useful strategic geography that can help us to guide policy. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example here, if we look at terms that we take for granted today, North Atlantic, Southeast Asia, those were two concepts that emerged in the context of the 1940s. And they emerged to serve very specific strategic responses to yoke the United States into a post-war European security order and to give Australians, Americans, and to a certain extent, the European colonial powers, a sense of what we now call Southeast Asia as a coherent strategic space. Mm. So the judgment that I always make with these things is fundamentally a practical one. Do these strategic constructs, and they are strategic constructs, they're not taken for granted realities, do they help guide us in terms of designing the defence and foreign policies that we need in order to advance our interests? And so I think that's ultimately, for me, the benchmark as to whether or not the Indo-Pacific is a useful concept or whether or not it is potentially, alternatively, a bridge too far. Which is a nice segue into my sort of final question around, does it really matter what we call these things? Well, if there is an argument about what we call a region from an Australian point of view, and the government at the moment, I think, has a real f- focus on this. In fact, it's a rather peculiar focus at some points. I was talking to students applying for the New Colombo Plan program, and, sure. on, and on the application form it says... Tell us how you will benefit from going to the Indo-Pacific, to which point I was like, the Indo-Pacific's quite wet. (laughs) There are no universities at sea. But nonetheless, I mean, does it matter? Does it ultimately matter what we call these things? Does it shape policy or does it kind of reflect what we're doing? And it's just a neat shorthand. I think it fundamentally does matter. We look at the term the Asia-Pacific. That's a product of the 1970s. That's a product of... One, uncertainty about the United States' commitment to the region post the announcement of the Nixon Doctrine. Two, a recognition of the increasing economic interconnectivity of North America with the production centres of East Asia. Asia Pacific was a useful rhetorical hook around which to build things like APEC, around which to consolidate in the minds of people, particularly in the United States, that East Asia was something that was fundamentally had to be very high up in their strategic concerns. So my sense is that words ultimately do matter. 
because if you get strategic geography wrong, if you get your labels misapplied, then it can lead you in one of a number of dangerous directions. I mean, for me, the poster child of terrible strategic concept is the idea of the Western Hemisphere. The United States being preoccupied with this idea that was very true to the imagination of isolationists in the 1930s, that they're protected by the expanses of the Pacific and the Atlantic, and that the Western Hemisphere could essentially operate without worrying about the rise of fascism in East Asia and Western Europe. So I think to a certain extent, if you look at strategic geographies, they do provide the basis for strategic planning. They do provide the basis also for shaping the public debate about how security orders should evolve. So if we take, for example, the local champion, the Indo-Pacific, that's a concept that matters because if that is assimilated into our strategic lexicon, if that becomes a rhetorical commonplace in Australian foreign policy, then that means that we do have to reconfigure our diplomatic footprint to give greater priority to India. That means that we do need to direct far greater strategic energy to cultivating India and Indonesia, for example, two very non-traditional security partners as being meaningful allies and counterweights within the region. It's a very different set of strategic prescriptions than one that would retain a primarily Asia-Pacific focus. So there is a lot that is invested in the hyphen, and I think that there is a lot, therefore, that is important within these larger debates about what it is that we call Asia and how we locate Australia within the larger strategic map. That's all the time we have. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trove Asia. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at aphillipsintrel, that's at A-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-I-N-T-R-E-L, or me at Nick Bisley. And if you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.